Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Rational Faiths Podcast, the best podcast on the blabbernacle. I'm your host, Brian Dillman. As you can probably tell from the music, this is not a general Rational Faiths podcast episode. This is another part in the series, Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist. In this episode, we answer two questions again with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Well, she answers them, and we just kind of talk about them. One has to do with pornography viewing and an unorthodox way of managing that within a marriage. The other question has to do with the common problem or situation of a disparity in sexual desire. So those are the questions you have to look forward to. Uh, Jennifer will have one announcement about a a big event that she'll be participating in, that she'll be headlining, actually. Um, So look forward to that. And she also told me that she will be having some summer sales. So be on the lookout, uh, following her through Facebook, on her website, uh, through Rational Face. I'm sure the next episode that we put out with her will have a link to those sales So, look out for that. And with that brief intro and announcements out of the way, let's jump right to it. All right, welcome back to another installment of the Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist with Jennifer Finlayson Fife, myself, and Laurel as usual. Welcome, Jennifer and Laurel, back to the podcast yet again. Thank you. Thanks. So we have two questions. One of them is very long, and so I'll be reading it, and it'll take a while, and the other one is much shorter. Uh, but two great questions again to ask Dr. Finlayson Fife and get her response from. Uh, before we get into that, Jennifer, do we have any other announcements or anything? Well, this is still very much in the planning stages, but I have been invited to be the featured guest on a tour in Italy for LDS couples, uh, a opportunity to be in Italy for 11 days and come with your spouse and enhance your sexual relationship while exploring romantic places like Venice and Florence um, and Rome. And part of the reason why the tour is being organized in the first place is because the temple that they're building in Rome will be finished about that time. And so people will be able to tour the temple uh, before it's dedicated, um, as well as all these other wonderful, amazing places in Italy and learn about how to have a more passionate marriage the whole time. Wow. (laughs) So that's, I can't, you know, confirm any dates, but it's looking very likely that uh, it's going to happen. So seems pretty fun to me because my husband and I both get to go and um, I have to work, but yeah, it'll be fun for us. So anyway, if couples are interested in that, I will be posting more information about it uh, once the details get worked out. All right, great. So if you're in a position to do that kind of trip, keep your eyes peeled and your ear to the rail. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Cool. That's a, that's a, that'd be a great uh, experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, Sounds fun to me, too. Yeah, I bet. Um, <laughs> I'll go there and I'll record it. Will they pay for that? <laughs> I'll bring Wait. a little microphone. <laughs> Podcasting from Italy. All right. Well, let's get started and do this first long question. This has to do with pornography and disclosure of viewing pornography. So here we go. Dr. Finlayson Fife. I've had a relationship with pornography use since I was about 14 years old. I've now been married for over 10 years, and we have four children together. I came out to my wife about my relationship with pornography about 18 months ago, and we have been navigating the post-disclosure journey ever since. I never attended an addiction recovery program or sought any formal assistance for my struggle, largely because I had a front-row seat to the way that the church, my family, and my community responded to my older brother's pornography problem. I watched as the complex, three-dimensional person of my brother seemed to be reduced to his addiction in the eyes of everyone he cared about. He attended addiction recovery programs, worked with the church and various support groups, and did everything he was counseled to do. Ultimately, however, his wife divorced him, his church friends distanced themselves from him, and my sisters and mother whispered worries that he was on a slippery, degenerative slope 
towards becoming a child molester. I also watched how everyone's sincerest and most dedicated efforts not only failed to cure my brother, but caused disastrous collateral damage in his life as well. Watching what happened with my brother sent me two very clear messages. First, that using pornography in any way is horrible is a horrible, horrible thing that will destroy your life. And second, it was a problem I was going to have to solve on my own in gravest secrecy. I felt like someone had sewn a time bomb inside my chest that was set to go off the moment my horrible secret was discovered, destroying not only my life, but the lives of anyone close to me. I did everything I could to keep the Spirit with me and to fill my life with personal righteousness, trusting desperately in God's power to cure me. I confessed to my priesthood leaders and followed their counsel, but always begged them not to tell anyone else. Over the course of time, this approach also failed to produce a lasting solution, and I repeatedly contemplated and even planned suicide, seeing it as the best-case scenario for me. About two years ago, I had an experience in which for the first time I set aside everything that I had been taught about pornography by my family and the church and decided to ask God directly about my protracted and ineffectual struggle. I asked him if looking at pornography made me a bad person. I asked him if looking at pornography was a sin next to murder. I asked him if he was angry, disappointed, or ashamed of me. The answer to all of these came back to me as a clear, still, emphatic no. After this experience, I have worked to achieve a healthy relationship with pornography where I no longer see my sexuality as an enemy or weakness to be isolated, subjugated, and if possible, annihilated. Rather than continuing to battle like Jekyll and Hyde, I have instead worked to integrate my sexuality and bring it under the conscious and conscientious governance with which I oversee the rest of my life. For my part, the results have been overwhelmingly positive, and I am actually less interested in pornography than I have ever been. It seems like because I no longer feel the need to fight it, it has become as mundane as mowing the lawn or watching the news, both of which I can resist for extended periods with minimum effort. For the first time in my adult life, I feel like God loves and accepts me, and like I'm living as an authentic, healthy, and integrated person. My question for you is how to navigate this unconventional strategy with my spouse, who has profound doctrinal, spiritual, and cultural concerns about my approach. As we've discussed things many times over the past 18 months, she has stated repeatedly that this solution seems much more practical, effective, and positive than anything else she's seen people try. But it just goes so contrary to everything in our religion and culture that she's just not sure if we're deceiving ourselves or being led astray. What advice would you offer for our solution, as well as how to present this option to others who may be struggling and failing with the traditional culturally sanctioned approaches? Okay, so it's an excellent question, and I just offer my real respect to this person for what he has been able to sort out for himself and how clearly, I mean, what a testimony it is, really, that his the response he got through prayer, how pivotal it was, how much it really has resolved something for him. But rather being in this constant battle of shame and a sense of of being a derelict person that he is able to, as he says, bring it under that same conscientious and deliberate control as he does everything else in his life. So it's clearly a testimony that something that that his level of functioning has taken a big step up, and that's very important. I mean, for just even as an immediate response to him and his wife, that that is a very powerful manifestation that something healthier and more right has happened uh, in his understanding of his relationship to his sexuality and pornography specifically. So. You know, I think in our cultural anxiety about eroticism and pornography as an expression of eroticism, we have been excessively shaming of what is really a natural human desire. And I think that it's really important. You know, he's talking about everything up until the point of, of, of asking God is really the artifact of the way of of the way that we deal with our sexual anxiety culturally, you know, as church members. And 
then how much that negatively impacts our ability to integrate our sexuality and to become healthy sexual human beings. So I think, you know, I, I get unclear sometimes about how much I've talked about these things on podcasts and in other places, but I think it's very important to say that our interest in sexuality and sexual imagery is normal. It's not, only, it's, it's not pathological, period. And not only is it normal, it's important. Um, that it's a normal part of developing your sexual capacity. It's a normal part of developing uh, an erotic mind, which is essential to being a happy sexual being in marriage. So, you know, I don't know if I've ever told this story on a podcast or not, but when I was, I don't know, nine or 10 years old, there was a book on the top shelf of my father's um, bookcase called The Naked Communist, <laughs> and it was a Cleon Skousen book. <laughs> not about that people what... that are naked, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that apparently not, but I scaled the bookshelf <laughs> and pulled it down to find, to my dismay, there were no naked communists inside. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't looking for like a, a political... <laughs> piece to read <laughs> and so maybe all the listeners now think that i am you know sexually um defective or something but that i think is a very normal interest and curiosity and so so feeling sexual feelings premaritally on our own is normal and essential really and while we may want the idea that our sexuality is, if we're good people, is awoken within the context of marriage when our spouse touches us for the first time after we're married. We like that idea, but it's not congruent with reality. And so, again, there's just nothing pathological about being drawn to sexual imagery. It's normal. Now, um, while we may want to define and shape our relationship to pornographic materials or erotica, that's different than saying that the desires or the behaviors are a function of evil, right? So um, it's a bit like saying that being drawn to brownies, you know, or sugar is pathological. Because, you know, if you, if you grow up and, you know, people were saying to you all the time, if you even think about brownies, if you're even drawn to them, if you even find that, you know, sweets compelling, then you obviously have something wrong with you, that you're not a good person. And if you grow up with that idea, you aren't able to integrate those desires into a healthy moral way of being in relationship to food. You don't, you don't create a healthy way of being in relationship to your desires. And then instead what happens is that you either are repressing your desires so much that you become anorexic, so to speak, or you become compulsive about it so that you're, you know, uh, basically eating pans of brownies in the pantry, sneaking up, you know, it's so immoderate because you're not able to really, as this person said, pull it into the sort of normal moral assessment of your behaviors and the effect that they have on your life and to not be approaching it with so much shame. So, um, so the question I think is, you know, how do you accept and integrate sexual desires in a healthy way? How do you respond to sexual longing and interest in a way that's consistent with your values? Um, how do you respond to sexual urges in a way that's consistent with what you want to create in your life um, with your sexuality? And I think taking the heavy-hitting shame out of the picture is very, very important. And I, you know, I worry a little bit about the compulsivity in the church, so to speak, speaking of compulsivity, <laughs> to refer to any interest or involvement with pornography as an addiction. Um, and Elder Oaks in a recent talk and Enzin also talked about this to challenge this, that it's overly pathologizing and not looking at the nuance um, and the range in which people are involved with pornography. And um, additionally, in my opinion, when we call everything an addiction, that while it's very shaming and debasing of a person, it paradoxically makes people really less responsible to their own choices. It's instead, it's like a process out of your control rather than a moral ethical issue that you have to make decisions around. Um, you know, for example, that if we call it an addiction, you don't have to really deal with the question of how do I make sense of the fact that I profess to believe one thing and yet I'm doing another thing. 
or, you know, not looking at the ethics around the dishonesty that's often involved in pornography that, you know, telling your spouse one thing and doing another. And I think that calling something our behavior and addiction is on the one hand devalue, I mean, I mean, basically overly pathologizing, but on another level, it's makes us feel better than confronting our own ability to sort of lie or our own anxiety about our sexual desires and not dealing with them more directly or honestly. And again, I think there's a lot of support for that model. And, and I'm not saying that people can't engage in sexually problematic behaviors and be very, you know, I have had clients come and say to me, I have a sex addiction and I, my response has been to them sometimes, depending on what they're telling me, you know, you have a much bigger problem than that. <laughs> you know, you, you are self-serving, self-absorbed, <laughs> you know, you're doing all kinds of things with your sexuality that are, you know, highly problematic, but you wish you had an addiction because then it would be something that controls you rather than you have really a responsibility to reconcile and resolve. So with respect to his question, um, well, I guess I would wonder a little bit to better understand maybe what this person's uh, wife's concern is about, um, because in reality, it sounds like he's viewing less porn. And so if porn viewing is the problem, then his way of thinking seems to be a decent solution since it's made the behavior go down dramatically. Um, but perhaps what she's anxious about is, well, she may be concerned in part about having a more independent perspective, that he's forging his sense of spirituality and goodness more autonomously and less dependent upon the church. And, and for some people that can feel scary to observe that in either in themselves or in a spouse. Um, while it's, you know, clearly it's a, as I've talked about a lot in these podcasts, it's a gospel principle, a fundamental one to develop our own relationship to God and to refine our own sense of right and wrong um, as a process that, that's part and parcel to our spiritual development. And so I see this person as developing his spiritual maturity. Um, you know, through his relationship with God, he he became to a more mature understanding of himself and his sexuality. So, but I think he's decreasing his dependence on the church, basically. And I think that that can be unnerving um, for some people, especially um, if we want to believe our spouse is going to be controlled through the pressures of the institution, because if they start loosening some of that dependency, does that mean they're going to go off the deep end or does that mean that they're not going to be as um, committed in the same way? Or, you know, I just wonder if some of that growing autonomy is part of the anxiety um, or because she doesn't see cultural validation for that autonomy. That's probably part of it, too. Like, are, are you really a good Mormon? Are we really good Mormons? Are we good people? If if the conventional answer isn't our answer, um, I think that one of the, just as an aside, I think one of the effects of shaming sexuality so heavily uh, that we do in church culture is that it forges a real dependency on the church, but not in a good way. I mean, if you take a central part of being human, such as sexual desire, and you problematize it, uh, just because it exists, you know, sexual arousal and adolescence, so example, you know, sexual desires, sexual interest, um, then you start to create this a division within people between themselves and, an, and a natural part of being human, being a child of God, and you forge a dependency on the church to grant you forgiveness for that natural part of yourself and grant you legitimacy by snuffing out this part of yourself. And I think it's not healthy and it's not godly and it interferes with individual strength and personal development. Um, and so that's really what this person is challenging. And I think it's just not what the culture validates yet. Um, but I do think it's really, it's cl very clear he's taking a developmental step forward, but sometimes that creates fear in us. Uh, it is that's one of the reasons why we like to be, we like authoritative realities because it takes some of the responsibility off our shoulders and makes this, gives us a false sense of security. Maturing and taking more responsibility for ourselves is hard and we tend to want to avoid it.
And sometimes we see our spouse do it. We, it makes us anxious too, because they're not as dependent on us. Um, you know, I don't know that, th- that this person's wife feels this way, but some people's spouses could also perhaps feel some comfort in feeling like your spouse, at least, you know, if you, you know, he's not guaranteeing he's never going to look at pornography. And so maybe she feels some comfort in the idea that it, he would at least feel horrible about it. So, you know, she doesn't like the fact that he's looking at it, but at least both she and he could agree that he's a horrible person for doing it. And there is a perverse comfort in that rather than seeing him being just more autonomous and self-accepting. Again, it's kind of, it can be kind of unnerving. So um, I think if I were this person, I think to my wife, I would say, you know, um, by my fruits, ye shall know me, um, that you can watch what I'm doing, that I'm becoming a better person, a more solid person, a more integrated person, um, that a, a better spouse because of it. Um, and, you know, I would say, you know, I owe it to you to and to me to be my best self and to hold in my heart what I know is true. Um, and you can watch me and see that I'm bringing better to both of us because of it. So that's really where she will get her reassurance if, if she can tolerate some of her own fears around it. Uh, yeah, that's an excellent response. I think I want to share, it's kind of funny, the more you read in Mormon history or scripture or theology, you kind of, you can find answers for almost anything because mm, we've yeah. documented so much stuff. But I have a quick little historical story about a church leader that took a similar approach to a word of wisdom issue. Mm. Um, and this is Heber, Heber J. Grant. Mm-hmm. And he was, if I remember right, so there's a there's a Doves and Serpents article that I'll link to, and there's also a more thorough BYU Studies article that isn't so much focused on the Word of Wisdom thing, but it provides uh, more detailed documentation. Anyway, so those are the sources for this. But if I remember right, Heber J. Grant was really thin, and he was trying to gain weight, and his doctor was telling him to gain weight. And one of the ways to gain weight is, well, you have to put in a lot of calories and beer is a great way to put a lot of calories into your body. Mm-hmm. And he eventually wanted to stop and wasn't able to because he enjoyed it so much. And before he had taken an approach with coffee, because he had the same issue with coffee, he really enjoyed it, wasn't able to give it up. But he took this approach where he, he told himself he was free to take a drink whenever he wished. Mm. And as soon as he did that, he says his obsession, uh, he overcame his obsession and ceased drinking, both with coffee mm-hmm. and then later with beer. And so mm-hmm. there's really is, there really is something with letting go of the mm-hmm. expectation or letting go of the shame or the stigma that's surrounding this quote-unquote negative behavior or bad behavior and just saying, you know what, it's no big deal, it is what it is, I'm going to keep doing it. And then you don't have this pressure, like this weight of the world on your shoulders. You can actually make choices instead of feeling trapped. Absolutely. Yeah, a book that I was reading recently called, it was written, I don't know, a couple decades ago, but it's called Losing Control. And a lot of research in there on self-control. And um, one of the studies I was reading was really around this idea that if you were to tell people that they cannot have something, as soon as they told themselves they can't have it, their tendency to do that behavior would go up. It's like you're screwing with agency when you do that. And people don't want to feel trapped even by their own, you know, sort of demands. And the moral life is much better lived in the clarity of I have choices. I can do this if I want to. Do I really want to do this? As opposed to I can't and if I do, I'm bad. That people will naturally, this is very much the case with food and there's approaches out there very much around coming into a healthy relationship with food that often is so distorted when people diet. Um, because of the same issue of trying to restrict and then becoming compulsive and then trying to restrict. And, and that when people will really just move into a frame of, I can have it if I want it. And my goal is to really care for myself. 
both, you know, nutritionally and aesthetically, that I could enjoy food, that people have a much higher success rate of coming into a healthy integration with food and their desires. So, uh, yeah, I had a question, a follow-up question. So in this, um, like there's not much, uh, both both in terms of sexuality and just faith, there's not really much um, that we're taught on how to navigate, um, you know, within marriage as Mormons, like when things start to shift, whether it's with faith or your views about sexuality. Um, and I think that's why I get a lot of people that kind of start freaking out um, mm-hmm. because, you know, there was, there was a program we were supposed to follow and right. there's no alternative given. So, um, right. So just for so for couples that might be finding themselves in in this kind of territory where things are feeling scary, um, what are some good questions they can both ask themselves and then try to open up and ask each other that could help navigate them and give them a sense of um, of kind of where where they're going and and to feel safe on this journey together? All I would say is that there is no program for it. And that is to say that (laughs) developed. There's no three step. (laughs) (laughs) Right. There's no program for development, meaning development, becoming a mature human being requires the tolerance of the anxiety of forging a stronger sense of morality within yourself. It is the decreasing of dependency that is uncomfortable. And you know, the dependency that we have on the church, on our parents, on, on the external world to define us is normal. But if you stay locked into it, you compromise your development as a person. And the church does that piece best. Um, we have in our theology support for growing out of that dependency because we are believe in our spiritual evolution that we have access to the spirit and our own relationship with God through which we have personal revelation specific to our development. We also have the notion of we are becoming godlike, And so we're, we're not going to evolve into little minions. We're evolving into beings who are wise, who are capable of um, asserting right and wrong, d- discerning between right and wrong and aligning themselves with goodness in complex situations in which there's not a singular right answer, that you have to figure out how do I forge goodness in this difficult situation. That's what development is at its core. And so all I would say to your question, Laurel, is to normalize it, to normalize the discomfort of it, and to recognize that something potentially good is happening. I think the question you want it's really based in integrity. So people can do all kinds of things that they may want to call integrity, which is really, I just want to rebel against the system and get away with things. Yeah. And (laughs) some people, they say like, I'm just being authentic. Exactly. (laughs) That kind of stuff. Yeah. When in reality, they're pushing against a structure and they're still as immature as when they were complying with the structure. I talk to clients a lot about being in a compliance defiance uh, struggle and both positions are immature. But when you're really saying in my honest perception, even if it's going to be unpopular or people won't validate it, I really believe this is the right thing for me to do. That's an integrity-based move. And some of the anxiety is, 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 is between validating your own choice, knowing that others won't validate it. That's the discomfort, but you're growing out of the dependency of others' validation to forge what you think is right. So quickly, you know, one of the women I interviewed in my dissertation research had a strong sense of this and she used her spirituality towards that end uh, where she was in a, you know, she had very conventional ideas about faith and the structure of the marriage and her husband being the leader of the home and all that. She had no intentions of becoming a medical doctor when she started out. I mean, I shouldn't say she had zero intentions, but she wasn't thinking, gosh, I want to work. She was thinking, I want to be a full-time parent probably. But at every step of the way, she would pray um, and she and her husband would pray and she would continually be given the response that she should continue going to school. And she was ultimately the one who made the most money between the two of them. They were co-parenting their children. And this wasn't what she expected. And it also wasn't what was necessarily validated by people around them. 
And yet she was able to tolerate the invalidation that some people, especially at that time, um, you know, things have changed a little bit culturally in the church, that she was sort of going against what an ideal Mormon woman should do. But she utilized her own clarity about who she was, her own relationship to God and goodness and her marriage to go ahead and assert what she believed was best for her uh, and for her, the commitments she had to her husband and kids. And so, you know, that's really, um, and she thought of herself as a very good Mormon. She had no question about that whatsoever, even though she didn't really comply with the cultural expectations. And I think that's, that is an expression of that development. She also had a very good sex life. <laughs> she was, well, she would, and I think they're, they, they coexist because when you're always in this compliance, good girl, good boy frame, you have very difficult time really forging a mature relationship to sexuality to yourself and to another person. That's why it's always coming up in these discussions. So then just a follow-up question. How do you navigate that if, say, one spouse is, you know, like moving towards kind of their own sense of of what they believe um, and not De- being so dependent on external sources, but the other spouse is still really wanting to cling to external sources. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any, do you have just, I mean, I know this is a really big question, but are there any yes. like kind of basic guide guiding lights you would give? Well, that's my caseload right there. But, um, you know, there's so much of that going on in the church right now. But I think that I would say that in my work with couples around this, I'm really pushing people around the issue of their own integrity and helping them really see what they're doing. Either their desire to keep the same structure in place or their desire to break out of it somewhat, that I really want to help people see what they're doing clearly and the effect of what they're doing so that they can bring their integrity to it. You know, some people are claiming a kind of rigid obedience frame in the marriage and trying to call it goodness, when really it's fear-based, it's... um it can be quite hostile towards the spouse that doesn't fit into that frame as comfortably. It's more of an expression of loyalty to that person's fears. Um, not always, because it depends a lot on what the spouse is doing. If the spouse is in more of a defiant, screw the church, I don't care, you know, um, position, then that may be more of an expression of I want the stability that we no longer have in our marriage. Um, what is often much more challenging for couples is when they see a spouse moving out of their dependency on the church, but remaining a good, solid person. That pressures much, much more. And so I guess my short answer is I'm just pushing people to really live up to the highest ideals in the faith, or in, if someone isn't any longer believing in the faith, what are the highest ideals of who they want to be? My, the mantra I have like on my computer screen all the time is reveal people to themselves and hold them to their own standards. And really people, their highest ideals of our faith is to love and care for one another. That love is the central commandment upon which all the programs, all of the other commandments, everything we do is there to support. And many of us rather take comfort in the programs and the structure rather than the really hard work of really loving and making room for another person in your life, even when their view does not validate yours. That takes courage. And so I'm pushing people to have the courage to really love one another and make room for each other, even if it's inconvenient for how you see things or want things, because that you know, I, a central tenet of Christianity, in my opinion, is that that love is what that that truth is inherently relational, and love is what brings you into greater truth and lightness, and greater truth and light. And so, it is through loving another person and making room for them and their dumb ideas, <laughs> um, and letting that shape who you are and what you see as true. I would say marriage is designed to pressure your development, and so it often does in ways that it can be really uncomfortable. Well, that's a that turned out to not be a short response. Yeah, I know. That was a... <laughs> it always that way. I asked yeah. lots of questions. Yeah, Laurel ruins everything. <laughs> I know. I want people to like think about 
stuff and things and things. <laughs> yeah, well, it shows there's so much more into it than just, yes. uh, you know, a pornography issue. Like, it's the Definitely. relationship yeah. stuff is so complex. and. Yep. Yeah. All right, well, let's move on to our next question, which is centered on... Sex! Yeah, and... <laughs> Are the probably the most comfortable thing in a marriage, which is a disparity in sexual desire. <laughs> yep. Yes. Pretty common problem, but this Pretty one's uh, this one's not the typical problem. So, Laurel, do you want to read that one? Sure. All right. Here's our question. Hi, Doctor Fife. I've been listening to some of your podcasts and found them very enlightening. I've really appreciated the insights. My question for you that I haven't seemed to find the answer to in your various podcasts is what do you do when your husband has a low sex drive? My husband and I have been married for almost seven years and have two little boys at home. We are very open in our discussions about sex and I feel very comfortable in my own sexuality. I've expressed to him the desire for more sex in our life on multiple occasions and it seems to go unheard because nothing has really changed. He often wants to have sex in the morning, which doesn't work for me with our little kids who are awake and running around the house and sometimes barging into our room. I often want to have sex at night as a way to relax, which doesn't work for him because he wants to fall asleep as soon as his head hits the pillow. We try to get away as often as we can, but I don't want to only have sex when we are in a hotel room. I've suggested scheduling sex, and he hates the idea of having a scheduled time to have sex. I'm just at a loss as to what to do. I'm starting to feel less and less desirable to him, even though he is very affectionate outside of the bedroom. I crave the intimacy that comes from, and I have ex oh wait, and I have I crave the intimacy that comes from and that I have experienced from having sex. I feel so lonely in my experience, it seems as though most of my friends have the opposite problem, where the man is constantly wanting it and they have to fend him off. What I wouldn't give to have that. I'd appreciate any advice you have for my situation. Okay, good question. So first of all, I would say the higher desire person always feels like <laughs> that they they envy the people on the other side of it. Do you know what I mean? Like that it's just hard to be the higher desire person in a relationship because you don't have control by de facto, unless you're going to force someone to have sex with you, you are the one with less control. And so, you know, people that, you know, the high, when men are the higher desire, they can't even fathom the woman being the higher desire and vice versa because they relate so much. They, they imagine, Oh, we should have just gotten those two high desire. People should have gotten together. <laughs> and while there's something to be said about that there are differences in people's natural interests that this question it's really no different than when women are the low desire partners and men are the high desire partners the same issue um, even though this issue goes against our stereotypes um, but basically low desire is not a personality char characteristic it's position within a dynamic which is a an idea of, of David uh, Schnarch Dr. David Schnarch and so it's, um, you know, certainly I think within LDS couples, men are more usually typically the higher desire person, but probably about 30% of my couples, the women are the higher desire person. Um, and so again, low desire is not a personality characteristic. It's the position. And so you're just lower desire relative to your higher desire spouse or vice versa. Um, and what often happens in that dynamic, differences in couples is extraordinarily common. Um, it's just part of being different people. But often if you are very reactive to those differences, then they become more punctuated. Um, and often one person starts to carry more of the ambivalence about sex and sexual intimacy and by contrast, makes the higher desire person look very comfortable with sex, um, mostly because they're just left wanting all the time. And they don't get the reassurance of feeling desired like the lower desire person does, because even if the lower desire person's not having much sex, they at least know that they're desired, know that they're wanted. And the higher desire person, as this person saying, can often feel very lonely. They feel like they can't get the validation or the gratification of that person choosing them or, or desiring them. So, so I think, um, men can have low desire for many of the same reasons that women do. Um, I think it's difficult to really be at peace with yourself and your sexual nature, you know, sufficient to freely express and expose your sexuality for both sexes. Um, again, when you're the higher desire person that often gets 
masked because the focus is on the anxieties of the lower desire person. But it's not easy for human beings to really um, be sexually exposed. It's a high anxiety form of engagement with people. And so we're good at masking men's vulnerability and sexuality. We're good at talking about it. It's fine for women to feel vulnerable. It's not fine for men to express vulnerability sexually. And so we, we, we erase it culturally. We make it go away, but this is a, this is a human issue. And most people try to limit how much exposure they have in sex, how much they really, um, how really intimate it is. Most people are often trying to limit it, even within marriage, limit the amount of exposure, they limit what they're willing to do. They limit how you know, the lights are on. They limit uh, if their eyes are open, you know, they do things to kind of get through the act with is the amount of anxiety or exposure they can tolerate. So in this couple, it, it may be that the husband has a little bit more anxiety about sexuality than the wife does. And so he, it's being expressed as he being the less, Actually competent one. Um, and I think it can be more distressing when the man is the lower desire person because it goes, again, it goes against the cultural, culturally accepted view of who men are supposed to be and who women are supposed to be. And so we kind of construct men as these unfeeling sexual machines, basically. And when, you know, again, they're often anxious about sexual exposure also. So, um, so let me just talk a little bit about some of the reasons why men can be the lower desire partners. Um, again, they may be just as anxious about sexual exposure as women are. I think many Mormon men are ambivalent about whether sexuality and eroticism can coexist with goodness, like we talked about in the first question. So, you know, many men can carry some fear that, you know, I know one case where one man looked at porn a lot, uh, had sex with multiple people when he was in his adolescence and early adulthood. Then he came back to the church, repented and got married. And then sex was so connected to being evil and bad and wrong that he kind of didn't want to infect his marriage with it and really didn't want anything to do with it. He was so much in pursuit of sort of the righteous non-sexual guy. And it really spoke to how unintegrated his sexuality was that he just wanted a marriage where it was pretty much down, uh, which distressed his wife a lot, as you can imagine. I think that men are pressured to basically be sexually competent. They should have high sexual prowess. They should perform. They shouldn't have delayed orgasm. They shouldn't have trouble with erections. They shouldn't have trouble having great orgasms, you know, if they're real men, that is. And so that kind of performance anxiety can be really hard on men, especially if they're partnered up with a woman who's very comfortable with her sexuality. Because am I enough for this? Am I sufficient? You know, I know men who married a woman who had already had sex before marriage and he hadn't. And they're in one situation, you know, many situations, but one in particular that I'm referencing, that he immediately shamed his wife's premarital sexual behavior, even though he was well aware of it coming into the marriage, because he felt so threatened by it. And so he needed to kind of co-construct a sexually incompetent wife uh, that he could then handle, that his sexuality could then handle. And she took, got the message she understood that she was being diminished and so she became the low desire person with a vengeance and he looked like the sexually comfortable one really because now his wife was the low desire person but really he felt insufficient sexually because he had a lot to live up to in his own head relative to her and um, when in reality they were both very anxious sexually um, so Men, you know, in men in their 60s are more typically the ones to shut down the sexual relationship than women are because as men start to age and they have more erectile dysfunction and because their bodies are not as responsive as they once were, can't tolerate the fracture to their own sense of self. And so will start disengaging sexually rather than tolerating their bodies 
and, you know, imperfection and their imperfection and being able to really experience intimacy rather than having to prove themselves through their sexual prowess. So, you know, I know this is a younger person, this is not a six-year-old, but, you know, the sexual performance anxiety can make people have less interest. Um, some men are ambivalent about really being generous with their spouse. They don't really want to be sexually generous or uh, give to her, especially, again, if they perceive her to be sexually more competent or more interested. And so they'll withhold. Now, women do this, too, when they're the lower desire persons, too. So I, I'm not really making this a male thing. I'm just saying men also can struggle with this. Um, there are some men who have difficulty eroticizing the mother of their children, that they want to split sexuality off from home life. And this is often men who have um, seen love to be basically the idea of service and self-sacrifice and attending to the needs or the demands of a woman, but that while he may be a wonderful father or a very doting husband, he has a very hard time really eroticizing and being sexual with her. And in part because he doesn't understand the dynamic to include the ability for him to really belong to himself and his own desires. And so he may split his sexuality off, pursue it in, you know, the form of pornography or other objectified forms of sex but not bring his sexuality into the relationship because he doesn't perceive that it's toler be tolerated there, that instead he should be in the sort of self-sacrificing mode that he knows well and is more comfortable with. And, you know, and then the, maybe similar to all these ideas is just that that performing anxiety, the anxieties about being generous, the anxiety about can I really eroticize a woman and make room for myself makes shutting down sexuality or, or splitting it off. And, you know, porn is a way to have a relationship to your sexuality that doesn't include any vulnerability. So those are all reasons um, why it may be going on. Um, there may be others. Okay. But I, to this person, you know, to the question of what, what can you do? Well, it's always a hard question because, you don't have the control that you might like. You only have control over yourself and you can't make someone watch you. You can't make someone love you. You can't make someone deal with their sexual anxiety. But what you can do is deal with how openly you address it and how you behave uh, in response to or in the dynamic that's between you. So if it were me, I would first probably find out how my spouse accounts for his lack of desire or lack of interest. Um, and I would make sure that I'm really in a position that I really am interested in understanding it, that it's not a challenge. It's not a, um, it's not saying, what is your problem so much as how do you make sense of less? You know, I perceive you to have less interest in me uh, than I have in you. I also perceive you to not be that interested in changing it. And am I wrong about that? And also, how do you understand it? How do you make sense of it? And I would look for in his response how I, as the wife, might be functioning in a way that makes me less desirable, meaning more difficult to desire because of my own behavior. Um, and I might be asking myself, like, how does my spouse see me? How am I handling his lower desire? Um, does my behavior make it easier for him to come towards me or does it make it more difficult for him to come towards me? So I'm not saying the wife's responsible for the husband's low desire, but, but there's a dynamic at play and what is my role in it? Um, so that question of how does my spouse see me, I think is very important. I would probably ask myself, Am I functioning in a way that makes it easy for him to not deal with his sexual uh, anxieties? Uh, for example, you know, maybe he's convinced me that he's working on it, although I don't really think he is. Or maybe he, um, I am resentful, but I'm quiet and I'm not really speaking up. I'm just kind of resenting it and pulling away. Um, 
how am I handling my desire for a more robust sexual relationship? Am I really standing up for something truly better? You know, am I really engaging and holding my desires for something that we really share together and want to create together that I'm really making that explicit or am I just, you know, angry at him and pulling away? Um, because when we, when we withdraw and we resent, we make ourselves and our desires really easy to dismiss. So if mourning truly is that it is an issue, I would see what I could do to make mourning work for me. Okay. Or figure out a way to, you know, that we really can address that because there are differences in people's circadian rhythms and their sexual interests and so on. And so is that just something that I just need to deal with? And is there some way that we really could find a time that works for us? Um, that's not so much scheduled, but that we make space for it. Or is it just a smoke screen? Is he just saying, you know, that I like sex in the mornings because he knows that the wife never does want to have sex in the morning. So I think the question is, do you think your spouse is truly giving his best on this? If so, then maybe I need to just metabolize a lower level of interest, but I really think he cares about me, loves me, desires me, even if it's not as much as I want. Or if I don't think he's really giving his best, then to deal with that directly in the marriage, uh, to basically name it directly, not in a hostile way, but name it directly and to stand up for it being dealt with and understanding what your role is in that pattern. And that's a healthy way to pressure both your spouse and you. If you're really standing up for something good in your marriage, a healthy desire, I want a better sexual relationship, I want to be wanted, it's going to pressure both of you to develop. You will also have to develop in order to really take a position that pressures the relationship in an appropriate way. You have to deal with, you know, that I might have to tolerate wanting something that I can't control getting. You may have to tolerate that your open acknowledgement of your unhappiness. And you may have to stop taking comfort in just resentfully withdrawing. I'm not saying I don't know how this person's handling it, so I don't know what she in particular is doing. But um, it means that I may have to regulate my own feelings more and really think about how productively I'm dealing with a challenge between us and manage my own feelings better to really handle this between the two of us. Um, but yeah, it, that's a, it's a really difficult thing. And I wonder, I imagine most marriages have some degree of disparity between yes. the two desire, the two partners desires. Yes. And it really, I, I think it was interesting that there's always going to be a difference in desire. The real thing is not, is it is the magnitude of the difference, but also mm -hmm. how how much the two people perceive, how big the two people perceive that magnitude to be. That's right. And uh, yes. you can, I guess it's it's one way of saying you can make a mountain out of a molehill if you're really sensitive to it, or you can tolerate a lot more. But it's mm -hmm. uh, the differences in desire, as you're going through all the things that you talked about, it's really fascinating how it can be a crucible for your relationship and mm -hmm. force you to become a person of greater integrity or force mm -hmm. you to be able to really communicate well. Um, yeah. Because, you know, there are lots of ways that we can just manage and get by, but to improve the relationship, it requires that you really put yourself out there and communicate right. in a heartfelt way, not in a not in a mean or resentful way of saying, look, this is what I really want. And you're pissing me off because you're not giving right. it to me. But right. to put yourself out there saying this is really meaningful. It's not just the sexual thing. It, it's the way that I connect with you. It's, you know, it right. means so much. And it's important to me that you recognize that and that you work with me on this. Right. Yes, as, as Dr. David Schnarch talks a lot about this, these, these tensions, he talks about lower desire and higher desire partners and these inherent tensions that emerge in a monogamous relationship because it pressures you. I mean, you can indulge the worst in yourself. And many times 
when you are not getting what you want in a marriage, which is true for all of us at some point, you don't get what you want either sexually or in uh, other realms, that how you handle yourself, how you handle that disparity has everything to do with what kind of marriage you create and whether or not you forge development. It's very easy, as I talk about in my courses, you know, they do these what I call natural man responses of, uh, or losing strategies of, of, um, that are basically sadistic <laughs> on some level. You know, you're punishing, you're hostile, you're controlling, you withdraw, you retreat, you resent. You know, they're, they're very easy things to do to try and control your spouse into being what will validate you and make you feel better as opposed to regulating yourself, anchoring yourself internally and really standing up for creating, dealing with a problem and creating something good out of the challenge that you face as a couple. And um, that's not to say that we have, if we just manage ourselves, then we'll get our partner to do what we want. (laughs) That's exactly what I'm not saying, which is you learn how to grow in the face of those disparities to either become a person who deals with their sexual anxieties and develops their sexuality for the sake of the marriage or someone who and or someone who becomes better able to regulate themselves in the face of not getting what they want and continuing to be loving, um, that those are really critical to creating a good friendship and a good sexual friendship. So, but I never can give people the answer that I wish I could give them which is do A, B, and C, and your spouse will be interested. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is not to say that, yeah. Go, oh, yeah, sorry. Go sometimes your goals or your expectations have to change. That's right. That, you know, you think we'll go to the therapist or we'll take this course or we'll buy this book. And then if we do yeah. A, B, and C, <laughs> yeah. then we'll be there. But I, I, right. I imagine many people have to change their expectations and learn to tolerate differences. Yeah, and is am I really there to love and care for this person? And or am I calming, loving, and caring what is really about collusion and putting up with their not dealing with their limitations? Many times you have somebody in a marriage who won't deal with their limitations and they get the other person to buy in that they're trying and the other person knows that they're not really trying but they're afraid to really deal with it or confront it and so their resentment grows while they while they stay silent around a partner that's not really willing to grow for the sake of the marriage. that Those are the hardest situations of like, what do you really do when the other person won't move for your benefit? Yeah. So yeah, it can be hard. Yeah. I think that kind of wraps up that question. So I'll just say thanks again, Laurel and Jennifer for coming on the podcast talking about sex fielding questions it's been good as always well folks there you have it one more episode down one more part in the ask the mormon sex therapist series for those of you that have your own questions that we have not tackled on in this series yet uh, feel free to leave a comment anonymous or otherwise on the blog post we try to follow those also you can send an email the address is always shown in the blog post associated with this episode on the rational faith website so you can submit your questions there if it's unique if it's something that we haven't talked about and it's something that can be answered in a meaningful way or a somewhat meaningful way at least in a podcast format we'll get it into one of the future episodes so Feel free to do that. And as for the next episode, I'm not sure when or what's going to happen. Um, I've been trying to schedule a fun discussion for a while now, and it just keeps our schedules just haven't been able to line up. So we might be able to get something out in the next week or two. Might take a little bit longer than that. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But I can promise you it will be as good, if not better than the average Rational Face episode. Uh, It'll be lots of fun once we get around to that. But it's one talking about the movies. And until we get that out, please keep keeping it weird, folks.